I'm Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced. The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, everybody, and welcome to Juwants, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of the Jewish world, Israel, and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. I'm Dan Pfefferman. We are excited to bring you another great episode of Juwants. Before we get going, Dan, I'd like to give a shout out to our audience watching us today on Facebook Live. Thank you all for tuning in. And for those of you listening later on on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all of the other podcast platforms, know that there is a live video version of the podcast, which you can check out weekly. It's available on our Facebook page. Facebook.com slash Juwans Podcast. Check it out when we record or watch all of our episodes on our YouTube channel, Juwans Podcast, as well as our website, www.juwans.com. And make sure you're following us on Instagram, where we are at Juwans, on Twitter, at Juwans Podcast. And of course, if you have not yet, make sure to subscribe on whatever is your favorite podcast platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your listening pleasure and of course we would uh, appreciate it if you leave us a good review we heard it makes a difference how you doing man well this is the uh last episode we will be recording here in this studio that is right and why is that um next week i'm moving to a new house a new apartment here in rehovot um thank you thank you we'll have a new studio and then of course you're moving to the u.s that's right after uh nearly 20 years here in israel you are abandoning us (laughs) <laughs> and leaving it's all your fault dan and leaving shlomo what do you think solely of this? your fault <laughs> I, is that what, I, you know i'm surprised but that's up to you benny has been here for a long time um you have a new career opportunity in the states pretty much okay Good fair well, maybe maybe we'll get into it we'll certainly we get into it on the last episode we'll do together, most definitely t- together in israel but uh, uh have no fear jewanced listeners uh the jewanced uh podcast will continue Absolutely, we'll continue uh, in a slightly different format, but it but it will continue. Um, we're we're very excited to have here uh, Dr. Shlomo Fisher. Shlomo uh, is a longtime uh, colleague and a friend, and uh, um, uh, really, uh, even though he'll be modest about it, a superb intellectual um, who I've had the pleasure of working with. Um, he's a senior fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute. He's a sociologist by profession uh, or by academic trade, and used to teach sociology at the the Hebrew University and at other fine academic institutions around Israel. Um, are you still associated with the Van Leer Institute? Is that no. Was associated with the Van yeah. Leer Institute and uh, was the founder and executive director of Yesodot, Center mm-hmm. for Torah and Democracy, uh, to advance education for democracy in the state religious school sector in Israel, and uh, generally just uh, uh, one of the most uh, knowledgeable and insightful people I know uh, relating to matters of Israeli society and the Jewish world, and uh, and of course all Thank the other things that much. interest us in uh, in Jewan. So uh, glad to have you on the show. Glad to be here. Um, so B- Benny, you you know you're the one who um, yeah. Let's make sure we're, we're talking right into the microphone like that. Benny, I'll I'll let you kind of introduce the topic because it's something 
that you brought up in a conversation that we had recently, and of course it's something uh, that, that I dabble in, in in my research and my writing, and, and you dabble in, in your professional career, um, but uh, I'll let you introduce the topic and why why I uh, immediately thought of Shlomo to uh, to be the right person to discuss this. Well, uh, it's, it's not so much as if there was like one central topic per se, but I, I think that what we would like to sort of try to get into is uh, given political, uh, call it challenges or, or politics that take place within the Western world today, um, we sort of... Um, not so much see a split in terms of Israeli and diasporic Jewry, but rather there's sort of, uh, how would you say it, Dan? So, sort of like there's something going on, whereas in, in American Jewry, there's a definite social justice slant that is... So you're talking about diverging directions of, uh, of who we are as Jews and what it means to be Jewish uh, between the majority of right. Israeli Jews and I think the majority of American Jews today. Yeah. So I'll give you a brief a brief anecdote of something that, that took place a couple of weeks ago and, and sort of where that brought me to uh, to think about this. Um, I, I work in, in tourism, and a lot of my clients happen to be synagogues. And I go and I visit a lot of their websites to sort of see what's going on in the world and who, you know, who, who are the decision makers, how to get in touch with them, you know, who's the, who's the rabbi, what's his email address, these sorts of things. And I stumbled across um, more than... More than uh, just a few websites where, in fact, the, you know, the entirety of the website pretty much was devoted towards, uh, you know, diversity, inclusion, social justice, immigration reform, gun, gun control. And, and th- that's fine. I mean, those are, those are very, you know, valuable and valid uh, positions, of course. Um, but, you know, the Judaism on the websites was, was very, very much like a different component uh, and, and sometimes difficult to find. Um, and, you know, I have my own, you know, sort of, uh, feelings about this and, and my family does as well. Um, but it's unavoidable and, and, and sort of to the point where you can't sort of argue that it's not taking place in such a way that, uh, it is sort of the, uh, at least if you're looking at their websites, uh, sort of the primary identifying element or theme right now in large portions of American Jewry. Yeah, or, or as you kind of uh, framed it to me, uh, when did the religion of Amer- of many American Jews become tikkun olam, become social justice? And so, um, you know, kind of use this as a, as, a, as a launching point for for maybe a broader discussion with you on how and why American Judaism developed as it did versus what we have here today in Israel. And maybe kind of let's put those in a framework or in a context. Okay, okay, the, the, okay, all right, so... I don't think this is new at all. I mean, no, not not new at all. Not, not at all. So uh, um, um, the emphasis on ethics and on social justice and all that goes back to the 19th century. Goes back at least to the 19th century, if not um, beforehand. I mean, Hermann Cohen, the famous Jew- German Jewish philosopher, basically. I mean, I'm I'm sort of unfairly um, abridging this, but, you know, basically said that Judaism is Kantian ethics. And um, and this has, there are a whole number of reasons for this, which are entirely understandable, um, which is that we're talking about diaspora Judaism. We're talking about modern diaspora Judaism. You're talking about Judaism, which is the religion of a minority, very small minority, 
most places, in most cases. Um, and hence has an inherent interest in things like what's today called social justice or minority rights or whatever it is that you want to, to emphasize. B, um, Judaism, I mean, it had this, historically, and maybe it still does, has this burden of proving that it's has modern characteristics, that it's not this obscurantist, ritualized religion that makes no sense, but rather has a rational uh, core to it, a rational and ethical core to it that modern people can identify with. Don't forget that you're talking about um, both in Germany and in the United States. You're talking about, well, Germany, it's North Germany especially, you're talking about societies that are Protestant, which also privilege inner experience and inner intention over externalized ritual action. Well, this came out of the the Catholic Protestant split, essentially, yeah, right? Yeah, right. So, so you're talking about so you're talking about uh, um, um, in in the reform movement, especially about people who wanted to adopt adopt themselves or adopt the prevailing Protestant ethos of um, of what counts as what's in your heart, what's in your mind, what's in your things like that, and not necessarily ritualistic activities such as uh, putting on tefillin or, or uh, right. holding I, a lulav or, or, or whatever it is that, that you would want to, uh, that you would want to. So, so you have uh, this, 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 um, so this, this is an old, this is, I mean, in other words, uh, diaspora Jewry basically had two ideas. One idea is that, is that Judaism is a rational religion it's a religion that's that um, that was most that started with Mendelssohn, of course. The Judaism is a, is a rational religion and more rational than Christianity, which has, which according to Mendelssohn's polemic had high had a good deal of irrational elements in it, such as, um, I mean, central Christian doctrines he considered to be irrational. So did Kierkegaard. So mm. I mean, it's not. So it's not. But yeah, and and that what Judaism did was basically not put um, manacles, as somebody would put it, not put manacles on man's reason, and that Judaism believes in the tenets of natural reason, and to the extent that it has rituals, those rituals are therefore to mark historical events and not to mark philosophical truths. Philosophical truths are supposed to... So, but I don't want to go into the details of Mendelssohn's philosophy. But, feel but, free. But, but, the point, but the point is, is that Judaism ha- is either rational or it's ethical justice oriented. These and these are and these are the two motifs that diaspora Judaism has basically so, carried um, has basically carried for the last two hundred or two hundred and fifty years. So, so not uh, not not to make it you know to simplify it because that's clearly. You know, not not a simple. Any anytime you're delving into philosophy and philosophic com- concepts, it can be it can be not simple. But it it's always of interest to me that if I was to go back in time to the to the 19th century when right. these sort of changes were happening in the Jewish communities of northern Europe and nor- northern Germany, right? You know, it, it, it's one thing for people that are deep philosophical thinkers to have these sorts of you know di- divergent shifts in in how they want to practice uh, a faith tradition, and and it's an entirely other thing altogether to convince. Basically, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Jews that they should 
go down this path and sort of change and the, the way that their that their uh, identity was oriented or is oriented in the way that they practice that and to sort of get onto we could call it the, an enlightenment train or, or or some sort of just a shift and 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 I'm just trying to think you know if, if I was living in that time and, and I'm you know we're living in a time now where, where there are different you know rapid and dynamic shifts but you know did that did that go over quickly? Was it that if you, how was it sold? Like oh, I think I think it, it it addressed itself largely to a Jewish bourgeoisie that wanted to be integrated into non-Jewish society, so they understood this. As, I mean, I think this was very easy for them to understand. This was so in, in the context of uh, Germany, it, of Germany, and then of the United States, and the United States, right? Those so those those are countries, and, and you and I have had these discussions in the past. But for the sake of, of the listener here. Um, uh, you introduced to me the concept of the neutral space that was developed in enlightenment right. societies. Right, so that was right. developed already in the 18th century. Correct, that was developed in the 18th What's century. That? So, and 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 break, break and, that's, and then Mendelssohn. Yeah. Mendelssohn, of course, was was he was the person who, as it were, represented the neutral or the semi-neutral space. It wasn't altogether neutral, but but the idea, the enlightenment idea, was that human beings, as human beings could share a, a common space based on their common human reason. And not on your faith tradition. Correct. You know, it's interesting, uh, our, our mutual friend, uh, Dov Maimon. Right. Okay. Uh, a colleague at the Institute um, who's uh, um, French with uh, Tunisian roots. Right. Uh, went on a trip to Tunisia recently. Right. On a, on a family trip, and they went to the island of Jerba, where there's still Correct. an ancient Jewish community. Correct. And he said it, w- it was fascinating for him it dawned on him that, that the, the community, um, you know, something that maybe we take for granted here in Western society, that there is this neutral space and that this religion is a primary uh, uh, internal matter, whether we are Orthodox or whether we're This liberal. is in Jerba? No, this is you and me now ah. and, and all of us here in Israel, in most of Israel, in American society, etc. I mean, in Israel, it's much less so because, because uh, religion right. is public. Right. And and, um, and to step into the space in Jerba, in Tunisia, where he said, you know, they believe in God just like you believe in this table. Like, it's as clear as day to them. There's not something you wrestle with, you struggle with, you think about religion and, and the forces of, uh, we talked about this with Tomer Persico on a previous episode also, right. um, are as much a part of your life. And so to think of this time period that we're talking about, it's a societal shift of this neutral space where where people begin to internalize religion as opposed to externalize it. Right. I that's mean, part of the privatization of religion. Right. That, that, that's, that, that, that's a primary motif that happens both with Protestantism and with so-called secularization. And 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 I think what we take for granted today is that modern religion, certainly in the in the, the liberal space, but uh, even in the modern Orthodox space, maybe. Uh, correct yeah. me, jump in if you think right, I'm wrong here. Right, is essentially that versus something that maybe certainly I can't imagine in, in a place where where religion is 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 just. Part of society. I don't, I'm, I'm religion trying to find is communal in Israel, in India, in in the Muslim countries. It's uh, and maybe in the Catholic countries also. And to a certain extent, the Catholic countries. That's correct. So religion, yeah, these are communal, communal, practical religions where where what's important is not so much your internal state. I mean, don't forget the the word that you use in English in America, which is a word I, I still I I don't like it. I I I, don't, I tend not to use it, but I know that everybody else uses it. Faith. Faith, right? What's your faith? What's your faith? What's your faith tradition? What's your? Yeah. In, in fact, you could really delve into the. You know, is 
in Israel, we see being Jewish as our, as our national identity. Correct. Whereas in the United States, it's perceived as a religion. Which right. is not it, necessarily it, it, a result of the... legitimated as a religion. It's, correct. It's not, at least among the older people, it's less of a religion than an ethnic commitment, but a, a sacred ethnic commitment. Right, and then, like and, then, and then I find myself entertaining all kinds of crazy arguments with non-Jews in America to tell them that being Jewish is not a religious element, rather right. it's they, a national identity that has a religious they component. They don't practice the religion how they're Jewish, because right. uh, there's no personal commitment. Yeah, I know that. I've, I've, met, I've had that with students here. Here in Israel. Not non-Jews. Non, American non-Jewish students. American non-Jewish students, yeah, right, right. And that's, I mean, so, okay, so if we're looking at, you know, we kind of come back to the starting point of Benny exploring the websites of, of all these synagogues. Well, I, I think that there's a certain element that, if I'm being frank about it, just gets down to, you know, your website is essentially a sales platform for the synagogue. And when you're trying to... It's essentially, I'm, I'm sorry. It's essentially a sales platform for the ah, synagogue. The okay. synagogue needs, needs to you know, promote or project its identity out to the world. And if you're looking right. to re reform or to a certain extent conservative synagogues platform, you're going to see what are the values of this community. And in today's American economy of ideas, the, 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 the value statement of this community is going to be that they're very strong social justice oriented because that's what that community right now is aligning itself around. And, and I think that there's... Well, and it's I, also and a I very say, strong motif in American life. Correct. And, and what, I st- what do you mean? I, I mean, let's put. I mean, what, I know that this is only part of America, but it's a part of America that's pervasive, which is that all these progressive values and all and all that, that they represent in terms of identity, identity politics, or identity uh, identities, and 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 um, what is derisively called political correctness. Etc. Etc. So I don't live in America, but for everything that I understand, you know, this is these are things that are very present, and there and the Jews, by the way, and especially liberal Jews, have the demographic, are the demographic that fits this. They're well educated, they're upper middle class, and they're the people. They live, they move in milieus that are totally, you know, so, so they adapt it. So they adapt their Judaism not for the first time. To these trends in American in American life, in other words, they have a tradition of social justice. Everybody, you know, uh, um, at one time it was associated with the prophets, with Isaiah, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you have you have this 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 tradition of being of, of fulfilling the prophetic tradition. And since in America this has become very salient, American life in general, it's become very salient. So then the, the Jews who are part of the demographic that is associated with this. Uh, feel that 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 that, that um, uh, they want to identify themselves with it, so as to, right, as to be you know be in the in the current in the current in the, you, in, the in the in the. I'm going to say something as, as as somebody who's a very and Dan knows this you know a very a very secular Jew, but who does not call himself a reform or a conservative Jew, but rather just a, I mean is you know an Israeli Jew living in Israel that you know is is uh, what we would say chiloni. Uh, about the American Jewish community or the progressive American Jewish community, which is to say that, and this is not a thought that I have formulated very well, so try to help me get there. I'm trying to find the intersection point of what, everything we've just talked about up until now, you know, the, the, the evolution of the Jewish community in, in, you know, starting in the 19th century, abandoning you know, older, more traditional Jewish practices in, right. in, you know, in search of, of, of what we just you know, laid out. The concepts of social justice in the American community today, and sort of the overall motif, I think, in in broader Western life of sort of this absence of religion or an absence of 
the need to believe in religion to be the organizing principle of a society. Okay. And I'm wondering is is there an argument to be made that you know woke progressive politics as an identity card is sort of the new religion of oh American yeah well that, Jews. you know that that type of argument had been made I mean constantly the people talk about political religions communism fascism and things like that that's 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 and certainly certainly certain manifestations of wokeness certainly show that uh, and especially it's more what, illi- what aspects what aspects show of wokeness show a religious aspect like a new religion well the parts that are basically the parts that are illiberal those 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 manifestations of wokeness. Unless I speak from Israel, so a listener in the United States might say, "I don't know what I'm talking about." Because mm-hmm. I haven't. Lived yeah, we're in very aware, by the yeah, way, that we're three guys that are living in Israel and that we're not there. You know, and, and right. So we're, we're, we're three hedging, form, former Americans. I keep on hedging yeah. hedging what I'm saying because I don't live in mm-hmm. America. I haven't lived in America for 50 years. So, um, um, but but it seems clear to me that that these attempts. Um, to not allow certain kinds of speech, um, to ban certain kinds of um, thought, of thought of speakers, of etc., etc., as representing some sort of absolute evil that doesn't deserve a place in the public discussion, etc. These are precisely the types of things that are um, that are done. Um, I would say have a religious phenomenology to them. Have a religious yeah. Um, I mean, it smacks of, uh, of the Inquisition or right, something like uh, that. Uh, yeah. In other words, to it, the it, point where you can't even heritage. Let's put it this way. Let's put this way. Danny Statman, when, when Haredim here in Israel, I'm going I'm to take a concept that was developed by the philosopher uh, Danny Statman, and and apply it to the thing in America. Um, you know, when Haredim said that, you know. We can't tolerate certain things because they hurt our feelings. Because they 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 defend us. They're um, 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 <clears throat> they're inconsiderate of our feelings, and we find them offensive, etc., etc. So so they so what so Statman was saying what they're really arguing is that these is that these um, women of the wall or whatever that these to them are examples of blasphemy. Theologically offensive statements, which are blasphemy, and I would take that thing and say that the woke stuff that doesn't prevent peep that prevents certain points of view from being made heard, etc. They treat that as blasphemy. In other words, that has that right, has right. that from 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 a I'm going to use a big word. I mean, from a phenomenological from the point of view of the event itself, it has the it has the the outline uh, um, the contours of 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 um of a religious violation right you know, and, 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 and and the person who's a blasphemer must be excised from the community correct. And, and and you know correct. there's no place for that sort right. of thought so, so for sure you have you have religious phenomenology over there i mean that's, that's so, so sure. i mean it's interesting because we had a development a societal development by and large in the west enlightenment societies where we developed this concept of even if you can be religious, a liberalism where you can and should be respecting the others around you, which is what allowed Jews right. to I flourish in the first place. I think the progressives are not liberals. So how do we get from a place, and this I kind of kind of take it to your point, Benny, and this is why, you know, oftentimes, and even in conversations with you or with people who who, who feel like they don't need religion, 
Um, and I kind of come back to the point where I think humanity, humans need a sense of purpose. I think we're still that, like you like to say, we're, we're you know, uh, we're, we're monkeys. Yeah, we're space. We're 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 advanced space monkeys. We're, we're on a rock we're, we're, moving we're around still the universe. Monkeys. We still need that tribal communal structure. We still need these belief systems. And so, if you ditch your tr- the religion of your grandparents, which is what a lot of people find themselves in, then people need to look for something. And that's where I think this, you know, uh, this is not where we even started the conversation. But but if we talk about wokeness, if we talk about progressivism or social justice or whatever, people need an organizing cause. They need a group with which to identify and a group with which to identify against. I mean, and and even though I guess we we thought as societies we could get past that, I, I don't think we are. Well, let's put it this way. Um, I mean, there had been and there still are sort of sociological theories, which would state that basically, what secularization means is it doesn't mean if you're going, it doesn't necessarily mean what a lay person would think it means. Okay. It doesn't necessarily mean that people become, it could, but it doesn't necessarily mean that people become less religious. They believe less in the supernatural. They believe less in God, et cetera, et cetera. There was a theory which was very influential at one time, which is that, um, that society, modern society, can organize itself functionally without religion, division of labor, et cetera, et cetera, all that works. And that people do need, as you say, individuals do need meaning structures, but they can, but the mean, in other words, the theory states that what's happened in modernity is that the meaning structures have become divorced from the organizing principle of how society is organized. Mm. In other words, that in, in, in classical medieval society or something like that, according to this theory, I'm, I'm, I'm being oversimplistic, sure, but sure. it doesn't matter. In, in classical pre-modern society, so religion provided the operating system for the entire society. Okay. Right. Okay, so then people say that, no, we, what, what secularization means is that we have an operating system that does not depend upon religion, that the division of labor and, 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 and efficiency and, and et cetera, et cetera, we've learned through these various techniques how to organize society in an efficient manner so society can run, as it were, by itself. This is a European ideal, English European idea. Society can run more or less by itself. Ah, but people, as people, need meaning structures. Now, when you need a meaning structure, you can develop anything, as a meaning structure, you can do yoga, you can go to church, you can become a Nazi. I mean, you can do, in other words, everything, everything is open. I, d- I didn't think that was an option for me, to become a Nazi. Well, we, we had a uh, former Jewish skinhead on the show. We so did. He uh, thought it was an option. We, we had a former yeah, Jewish skinhead on the show. I mean, you can have <laughs> what, and what, you know, I mean, what, how many things can you do in New York on Sunday morning? Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you know there are. Endless amounts of things that so people so the idea was that people cobbled together their own religions which were made up. Right, right, right. That that was the idea. Okay, so <clears throat> that's one thing. <laughs> but it turns out, and since I lived through the first Great Awakening of the uh, post-war era, so this is to me the second Great Awakening. I'm using a religious term. Yeah, sure. This is the second Great Awakening of the um, 
of 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 the post-war era. I lived through the nineteen sixties. Good times. I was. Uh, I would say that it was formative for me. I was. I was born in nineteen fifty-two, so I remember the first Great Awakening. In nineteen seventy, I came to Israel, but I was in America from. Obviously, I mean, you know, my my high school years, I lived in New York City, in the nineteen sixties. How was that? Very, very, very interesting and very formative. Okay, I went to yeshiva, so I know you can say that I wasn't totally exposed to everything that that there was. But yeah, but but uh, but but yes, I mean, if if you want to ask me about, yeah, I heard Jimi Hendrix play in oh, the cool. film live. Nice. Okay, I mean things like that. So um, so 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 this to me is like the second time it's happening. But it's happening. But the sixties was much more fun <laughs> than, this, than this is. This is, has a this has the progressive stuff. Sixties was fun. I mean, that's what I mean. It, it was uh, Joan Didion, who passed away not so long ago, and probably many of your listeners may know may have read her stuff. So Joan Didion debunked this fun aspect of the nineteen sixties. But the truth is, is that it was supposed to be. A personally liberating experience, a societally right. and personally liberating experience, and that's why it went together with drugs and rock and roll, and you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll. I mean, that's it, that. So these were cultural, but also political things, mm. and it was much more naive <clears throat> than today's. Mm. That seems to me today's my progressives. Today's progressive progressives seem to me. As an as an external as an outside observer, to be much more ill-natured. 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 Yeah, ill-natured. Not nice. Yeah. Uh, no. Okay. I mean, uh, uh, Ill, ill-natured, in a way that you weren't supposed to be in the 1960s. Mm. Let's right. Let's put it that way. I mean, yes, the United States. Did nasty things with napalm and stuff like that, so you're supposed to oppose that. But you weren't, in your essence, supposed to be a nasty person. So, sometimes, yeah. right? There was a, there was there was a stream at the time. I mean, I was I was not alive, but it, you know, from what I hear, there was a element of it which was about free love. Yeah, yeah, sure, and, for sure, and, and you know, for sure. All you need is love, acceptance. Et cetera, et cetera. And, it's a right. song, but it came out of. I mean, whereas you know. now it's it's. You're either with us or you're against us, and if you're against us, you're right. evil. And you so need to yes, be so that's a, that was eliminated. that was proposed. There was such a slogan: "You're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem." But yeah, but, still but, is. but but today it's much. It now, seems to me to be much sharper. Now this seems to have this very strong like anti-government bent, like any government. Well, one oh, second. Okay. It's it's both anti-government, and very pro-government. I mean, the Democrats are very, a very, you know, the, the Democrats at this point, um, as as in terms of political party platforms. No, no, they are, want they want strong government, but they yeah. don't trust the governments. All right, I mean, they so, don't trust yeah. the existing the existing government, governments, but yeah, they yeah. but they want government control in in their hands. They want well, to be the sure. ones controlling the levers of right. power, but they. But I've once seen, that I've seen happens, that go both ways. I've seen it also go in a libertarian kind of "we need government out of our lives" way, unless it's con- right. But I've, I've seen, I haven't seen a lot of consistency in that manner. Um, you you mentioned. I want to kind of go back a second though. You mentioned the the the, the prophetic justice, right? In, in you know, take this back to a Jewish uh, lens for a second. 
throughout the scope of, of Jewish history, or maybe we'll call it rabbinic Jewish history, right? Yes. Post temple, post temple yes. Jewish history, yes. uh, uh, from the time of, of the rabbis and until until modern times. Did that have any kind of role in Jewish authority in purpose in in the story that we told ourselves as Jews of why we're Jewish and what we're doing was there a story yeah I, I a I think there was it was restrained because of um, how shall I say segregated Jewish existence I mean in other words Jews did not act in in say pre the 18th century or pre the 19th century did not think about reordering society as a whole. And they did not think about, and they did not even think about in a fundamental way, reordering Jewish society, because that was also um, difficult to conceive, especially as they were dependent upon the Gentile powers for their existence. So that it didn't find expression in the way it may it, that it found expression in the modern world. At, at the release of Jewish energy in that direction, revolutionary energy, etc., I think is not an accident. I think it comes out of, of the, part of partly out of the Jewish situation and partly out of the Jewish tradition. I would say. Say, say that sentence again. The, the release of that kind of Jewish revolutionary energy yeah. zeal. Okay. I'll call it a zeal even, because they always seem okay. to be. Anytime right. you have these modern political movements, right. there's always Jews at the forefront. Correct. Them, right? So so Where so, does that come from? I mean, I think it sure. I think it, it in part comes it comes from A that the Jews it, in other words, this is why we're different than previous generations of Jews, but Jews were even in the modern world an oppressed minority. Mm. A. So it, so that it came. It fed off of that, but it but that dovetailed together with the Jewish tradition, like the prophetic tradition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Did it find expression in previous centuries? The answer would be yes, but in a much more muted and in a fashion that's much more, how shall I say, individually and communally focused, and not globally or nationally focused. But um, um yeah I mean uh, I, you know one can point to specific examples in Psak etc etc et but there was this overall understanding that halakha has to serve the um has to serve the oppressed the underdogs etc etc so it finds expression in all these stories that one hears you know about 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 you know the classic expression you know, um, is of course with the the rabbi permitting the poor woman who comes to the rabbi with a question about a chicken that she has just slaughtered mm. and that she finds um, a hole in a flaw, the lung right. I'm sorry uh, a flaw in the chicken Flaw in the chicken, right. right? Which, for those who are unaware, according to the rules of kosher slaughtering, if, if an animal has a blemish or a flaw, a blemish or a is sick, fatal. Uh, it makes it unkosher. Yeah, right? if the blemish is fatal, that, that's basically the rule. So, in any in any event, and and the rabbi understanding that this is all the chicken she was going to have. I mean, she can't, 
he can't invalidate this and then her family will have nothing to eat. So the rabbi does his best to uh, to maintain that the chicken is kosher, and that's and that's the tradition that 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 rabbis in training, as it were, are socialized into. That when people oh, who are poor, who are not of means, who are etc. Cetera, etc., cetera, you have to bend over backwards and bend the tradition in their favor. In, in their favor. And does the Orthodox world still have that tradition today? Um, okay, so that's that's that that's a bit of a of a, these questions are very complex on what goes into the sociology of well, that's what the show's of, about of, of rabbinic <laughs> of rabbinic rulings. But um, I I would imagine that theoretically yes, I would imagine that theoretically yes. Um, now I don't know. Uh, on the other hand, you have two. Factors that would mitigate against that. A story such as I just related to you depends on the fact that there's no threat to the tradition. So therefore, right, right, if right. I bend the tradition okay. in a lenient direction, that's not going to achieve an ideological. That that will have no ideological import. Yeah, the, the Right, you're you're not you don't feel like you have to uphold the walls of tradition, correct? Because there are outside right. forces trying right. to. So if uh, I tell the, I tell the poor woman that the, that the chicken is kosher, I'm not going to be in any way, you know. Her kids aren't going to undermining, undermining. What did you say? It's not going to lead to mixed dancing. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Right. In other words, so and and in the modern world, you always have. I mean, what orthodoxy is defined, you know, that was Jacob Katz and his students. That orthodoxy is defined by by a, a, a self-conscious program of upholding the tradition. So you even make, so you do things not because they're necessarily mandated by the halakha or not, but you do things so in order to maintain, to uphold the walls. So the walls the structure, of, the tradition structure. Of the tradition. So, that, so, so, that, so that's, what, that's one thing. Secondly, you know, in, uh, in America, the, most of the poverty in the, Jewish world today, a lot of it, not all of it, not most, but a lot of it, is located in the Haredi sector. I don't know how Psak works there. In other words, I, I mean, I, I know a little bit, but but in other words, I I I <clears throat> I can imagine that according to circumstances, rabbis will either rule in this fashion or not, depending on the circumstances. Also, depending upon whether the person asking what he expects. And he may expect a stringent, a stringent um, decision decision in accordance with his own self-image as a very religious person or a very machmir person or something like that. So I don't know how these things work. I mean, you have to. You, 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 you That's interesting. It's a very interesting question which I've never th- really thought about. How does psak work in the Haredi world? Yeah, I mean psak for individuals, not psak, not not public psak. No, not for the community. Right, right. Yeah. Because no, that's an interesting point that you brought up, and that. Um the role of, of religious rulings, and again, for those of you who aren't aware, uh, uh, traditional Judaism and today Orthodox Judaism lives by religious laws that are biblically mandated religious laws, and that's the job of the rabbi is to make legal decisions about day-to-day life. And so there's the element of the law, but there's also the, the element of uh, the previous, when Jews were segregated for community, the lack of a threat of assimilation, and so you could make more lenient rulings because the Jews aren't going anywhere. And today, the element 
of more stringent rulings because you're less worried about the poverty and you're more worried about keeping the walls of tradition for Correct. the sake of keeping the walls of tradition right. for modern Correct. community. That's a very interesting distinction I never thought about. I'm still going back towards, mm. uh, this is taking a 180 completely, but going sure. back towards towards where, where we started here. Uh, it is interesting to me that in in the sort of you know introduction of Reform Judaism, they would they would come up with practices that imitated the practices of the non-Jewish yes. communities around them yes. in order to because we were talking before about the sort of uh, getting away from from ritual and and being more you know in the mind R- ritual uh, for the sake of ritual ritual right. for the sake of ritual right. yet yet. Uh, how did we get on this? A couple of weeks ago, I noticed that a, that a mutual friend of Dan and, and myself, who who will remain nameless, posted pictures of their son doing something which in Reform Judaism is called a consecration ceremony. Okay, are you familiar with this? I know about confirmation. Okay, so consecration is the is the beginning. The confirmation is the end of the education. Uh-huh. They've now been into. They've, they've graduated. So I got to tell you this. I mean, because I never told. I mean, I, I, my family's been in the. I mean, my family is now. Well, I have a brother in the United States. I have one brother, and I have a niece and nephew in the United States. But my, my family emigrated uh, in 1915 to the United States. And so sociologically, we're not part of the post-war Orthodox world. We're part of the great Pre-war. immigration that happened. And most of the, many, many members of my extended family are like other American Jews. They're not Orthodox. Sure. They're intermarried. They're, you know, I mean, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know a lot of them, but I know some of them. And you know, I, Okay. <clears throat> so as, as is mine. I'm sorry? As is mine. Okay. So I used to read, we had in the house, because my brother, I'm the youngest of three brothers, and we had in the house all these books published by the Jewish Publication Society around sure. 1900. Novels. I remember, I mean, the Fire Eater and Boot Camp. I mean, I remember these, these and, and and they had like descriptions of what the authors considered to be normative American Jewish life, where the messer, where the, the message, I'm sorry, where the message was, you know, assimilate into American life, become an American, be proud of your Jewish heritage, uh, but be an American, etc. And all the all the protagonists were these successful Jewish kids that you know. Uh, um, dealt with anti-Semitism in their youth and then became, you know, went to University of Pennsylvania or to Columbia or to Harvard and one became famous people, etc. Okay. I remember reading these things and not understanding what they were talking about. Because? Because? I didn't know what confirmation was. Right. When I was 11 years old, I didn't know anybody. Because okay, you grew up Orthodox. Yeah. So, <laughs> so It was confirmed. that it, I didn't know. All these things that I, that I didn't... So Benny and I both grew up reform, so we know exactly. I don't know if I went through the 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 rituals of that. I did. Did you? Oh yeah. I I know that consecration. I learned this after the fact. Consecration is like when a kid is like preschool age. Okay, they go. Oh really? Yeah. They go to the synagogue and they go to a consecration ceremony, which essentially affirms that they're going to enter into a process of Jewish education. Okay. So the question is, why why do you need to have a ceremony about this? What where does that come from? So I, I did a little bit of research into it, and then I learned that uh, it dates going back to the very early days of Reform Judaism mm-hmm. in Germany. Uh, and there was a rabbi at the time whose name I, I don't remember, but basically it was intended to take the place of Brit Milah. That they, ah, they would give oh. up the practice of Brit Milah because it was an archaic and barbaric practice. Right. And instead, C- they would affirm themselves into the covenant with 
Hashem by right. doing a consecration ceremony and publicly stating in front of the community, I hereby consecrate myself to this. And okay, and that's interesting, and I understand that in, in, in its place and time, because that was what the community was trying to assert itself to do, to become a more normative part of right. German society, to emancipate itself and to be a, a full uh, invested player in, in society, whatnot. Um, but it's interesting how we have traditions today that, that sort of, you know their origins, their origins are public. We, and I believe even today, most reformed Jews would say, no, absolutely, we're not giving up circumcision. I think, Some I think do. Most, I think most reformed Jews do circumcision. But they do circumcision. I think they do it in the hospital. In the hospital. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, know. Yeah. Yet they do this practice called consecration, which is, it's a, it's a matter of fact that that's where it, it has its origins from. Yet they're still doing it. Um, and and I think that most people just don't realize that. I don't think that people understand what it is that this is that the ceremonies that we're doing. They know it's not orthodox practice. Yet I don't think they do. I don't think that they think that orthodox Jews have con- that it, maybe they think it's something else. You're right. You're I, right. I, I, I growing up, I didn't know or think about orthodox Jews. Well, you didn't think about orthodox Jews. You just thought this is a Jewish thing. Yeah, Jews I, do. I mean, I, there's a famous book by uh, by by Eric Hobsbawm and Terence Ranger called Invented Tradition. You know, it's a standard sort sure. of text that people. I, I mean, in even in Orthodoxy, how many things do we know exactly where the so, tradition comes from, and we still do? So here's it, right? this has been the dilemma of my life, okay? And and just this, I have many dilemmas. I'm you're a troubled a, person. A this has been one of the central dilemmas, not consecration, but but the. I if I go back to myself, you know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, okay, somehow in being a free thinking kid, I started calling bullshit on a lot of stuff. And a lot of that led me to a place where I would look into my, you know, Reformed Jewish background or upbringing, and I would say, "What is this consecration nonsense? What is this confirmation nonsense? Where does this start from?" Did and you I would become look Orthodox it. as a result? Yes. Aha! Uh-huh. Of course. Yeah, for a time. For a time. Aha! Uh-huh. There, there was a time when Benny and I met. We would we would go to. You weren't observant, but we would go to an Orthodox synagogue together regularly. Right. So exactly, and 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 there was a transformation that took place. Now I'm sitting before you. You can affirm to the to the listeners. Am I wearing a kippah? No, no, I'm not. I'm I'm very secular. I've, I've seen you eat bacon. <laughs> Dan see me eat, eat pork. I Dan would call me uh, like what was the word that you called me? Like an apostate? Like a because? Sure. Okay. Which is to say, and I'm not saying like I, I accept that, but I'm saying I will. I understand what is let's say traditional practice. I personally have more of an affinity towards traditional practice. And as much as I don't believe in a lot of what's behind it in terms of the structure we were talking about before of, of the supernatural or the, or the divine, I, I still would prefer it if I'm going to opt into something than reform Judaism. Because I don't, and this is myself. You would opt into reform Judaism? No, I would not. I'm saying I would prefer, if I'm going to, in, in essence, if we're going to bring it into the Israeli context uh-huh. i much more see myself in the way that i engage with religious practice when i do similar to mizrahi israelis that uh-huh. might just have a respect for spiritual or traditional elements but they themselves are watching tv on shabbat and driving in a car rather than say i'm going to drastically and dramatically change the entire oh, structure okay. of religion okay. and create a new church okay. so secular orthodox right Secular Orthodox, which, yeah, is which makes yeah. me a major minority, not in Israel. 
in 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 the United Israel, States. you have a tradition of what Dan calls secular Orthodox, right? The right. shul I don't go to is Orthodox. Exactly. Correct. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That that's that's well known, and that's and that, that's that to a certain extent is weakening. Yes. That that's not among Mizrahim. No, Mizrahim are a little bit different than that. Mizrahim mm. are not. They're not secular. They're not secular. But they're also in the not observant in the same way. Right. But that that used to be. I mean, I met at least one woman who told me that she got an Israeli woman who told me that she got married in this reform ceremony, and it was totally meaningless. And she said, "I would have preferred either to get married in the rabbinate Orthodox or in a civil ceremony in Prague." Well, and, I, and this and this and this thing that they prevailed upon me to participate in, I thought was just ridiculous. Yeah, it was, yeah, I it mean, was not. This, I'm yeah. not this. I'm, you know. Right, you know right. If you, if you remember the, the the book I wrote a few years ago on the reform and conservative, and I looked right. into all these liberal trends in Israel, and I saw am, among uh, Russian, former Soviet Union Jews, who by and large are very anti-religion. Right. Uh, the majority. The generation. And the new one. Well, the new one's more socialized into Israeli life. So, right, but a lot of them, when they, they, they want a rabbi, and a rabbi that looks like a rabbi to marry them. Of course. Right? They, they <laughs> of course, of course. There's course. polling. There's polling done on this. Of course, yeah, of course. And um, Listen, you're in Rehovot now, right? Yeah. So you had he, I mean, he just passed away, Rav Simcha Cohen Cook, yeah, uh-uh. who, who was the one of the paradigms, one of the one of the, the primary examples of, an, of a Haredi rabbi who understood... The needs of secular Orthodox, and completely cooperated with that, and as a result of which he was very makubal. He was, was very, very accepted. He was very popular by, right. by very popular by the entire population. Yeah, right. Those are people who became. I, my theory about that is that these are people who became rabbis before 1977. What happened in 77? Mapach, and the Haredim became part of the government. Mm. And as soon as the Haredim became part of the government, so in other words, until 1977, I mean, I don't know, I, I was in Israel in 1970 to 1973, and then in 19, then I came back in, in October 1976. So I was in Israel. So the, during the first stint that I was in Israel, and it was a Makpai, Flegat Avodah government, it was Golda Meir. This is the, the labor government. Right, it's right. the labor government, right? It was Golda Meir, right? Uh, Eshkol had already passed away, I think, or Eshkol had had already passed away, and I think Golda was was the, was the prime minister, if I'm not mistaken. In '72, she was, yeah. I'm sorry. In '72, she was still prime minister. I think in, into '73. No, I mean she. She's. I came in. I came in June 1970. So it would have been. I'm not. I don't. I don't remember who was prime minister. I, was, I came in June of 1970. Okay. I mean, I came. It was pre-Begin, though. I came before the end of Muhammad Atasha. Okay. I, when I came to Israel for the first time, Muhammad Atasha was still going on. The war of attrition. The I, war of I, attrition. I keep saying this because many of our listeners are actually all over the world, and we assume they're not Jewish because they're right. countries that barely right. have Jewish populations. Uh, so, uh, so the war of attrition was still going on. So, but, but, uh, but in any event, and I remember that the country was really secular. I mean, the, the government was very secular. And 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 it was not like it was, you know. And the tone was very secular. The tone of everything. Well, what does that mean? I mean, differentiate that from today, for for those who weren't around back then or didn't know Israel. Let me. Uh, I, I I I mean, there was we, we there was 
the um, the Ministry of I think Tourism, but if I'm not mistaken, it's like 50 years ago. I mean, uh, the, um, the Ministry of Tourism I think was held by Mapam. So these are left wing parties in Israel, right? Left, um, left progressive, secular right. parties. Shemtov, I think Shemtov, Victor Shemtov. Yeah, Victor Shemtov. Either Victor Shemtov or his brother. What I think was Minister of Tourism. Okay. And I was at the time in a yeshiva. I was in Karen Biavna, which is which is not far from here. Yeshiva Yeshivat Hesder, which is a yeshiva that com- one of the first yeshivot. Yeshiva is a rabbinical academy that combines military service with religious studies. And for some reason, he came to visit. Uh, maybe because of us. I, I don't know why. Okay. Because of, for some reason, and it, it was just so apparent that he didn't connect. To, to these yeshivas at all, I mean, like it was like you know he was very polite, but but it meant nothing to him. Mm. I, I mean, and and he was a minister; he was a government minister. He controlled budgets. I mean, he was, and and I remember the Rosh Yeshiva, the head of the yeshiva, who was Haredi, Rabbi Goldvicht. I mean, they they went out of their minds to try to like, you know, affect this person, make him favorable towards them. He was polite, but it was like running, you know, water off a duck. I mean, right. uh, and, and I mean, today, just to think about it, because uh, uh, um, observant Orthodox people in this country are not tw- roughly twenty five percent of the country, and they're in all the top positions. I mean, like you, you all the top positions. That, that's a very different. Uh, let, let, let me ask you this, because you have you're gone, not going anywhere in politics today if you don't know how to talk to religious people in this country. Yeah, since you, since you have gone through all of these changes in, in, in time here, I'm not trying to make you sound like you're like a, a, an old man, but you've. Been I'm going to be 70 in next week, so like you know. Um, um, Whoa. So you Happy, know. So uh, Ma- Mazel Tov in advance. You, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So, Do you going through that change in that time in this country? Ultimately, looking back, was it favorable for the Jews that the Haredi parties became a part of the government after the Mapach, or would it have been better? in in, in in the perspective of time, if they were to have remained the way that they so, were, so that touches upon the, the f- fundamental ambivalence of the Haredi phenomenon. Um, listen, so you know, on the one hand, right, the modern Haredi society. Let's just explain this to ourselves and to our, our listeners. Mm. That modern Haredi society starts in 1977, for the simple reason that the defining characteristic in Israel of Haredi society is the idea that if you're sitting and studying Torah, you're sitting and studying religious studies, you are you have a, a deferment from the army. That, it's ma- in its ma- I've always been told that in its massive structure, that was a result of the 1977 coalition agreement. I, I heard it goes back to even earlier coalition agreements. No, that's, that's what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. They were not. There was no coalition between them. The Haredim from 1949 to 1977 were not in the coalition. This was. Uh, there you, you, was an okay. agreement in 1953 between Rabbi Karela, who was called went by his the his the name of his book, the Chazonish, and right, Ben Gurion, right, right. yes, which initiated the deferment. Right. For, uh, so I spoke about 400 people, 400 right, cause now. Because the Haredi community was decimated after the Holocaust. Right, right. Now, that was started in 1953. There was always a quota. It was not blanket. That was Chaim Israeli. Chaim Israeli was, the, for many, many years, the number two person in the Ministry of Defense. And Chaim Israeli, when he retired, published this study about the deferment of Haredim, of Toratam Umnatam. 
His conclusion was, was that the blanket deferment is the result of the 1977 coalition agreement. That's why when you meet people my age in Israel, I would have been, I was 18 in 1970. So when you meet people my age in Israel, Haredim, they will always tell you, Ma, and I, what, I wasn't in the army? Of course right, I was right, in the army. Right, right. For three years. Of course you were in the army. There was a, Not everybody got the deferment. They allowed one in a family or two in a family. Everybody else went to the army. In other words, it was a very small population. Was that fought against? In, in the, those families, was it like, in the, right, in that's, the just, that's just the way it is. We're going to, you know, these three kids are going to go to Yeshiva. The rest of them are going to go to the army. And, uh, I, know fam- I know families like that. It was done by natural inclination. No, uh, no, but I'm saying, asking, was, did people protest that at the time? Was the Haredi community they, nobody, against it? Nobody thought there was any possibility of protesting it. So they were cool with it. It was like, yeah, okay. They were resigned to it. They, they were resigned to it. And that's why Haredi society was an elite society. society the big change has come over Haredi society. Is that it became an elite it became one from an elite ah, society to a mass society. This is interesting. Not, not that everything else we've been talking about wasn't interesting, but this is this is very new. Yeah, I mean, it's it's in the last twenty years every, that Haredi society. It, it was always assumed that to li- to be Haredi meant that you would have to give up on worldly accomplishments and on worldly resources. And that you were one of the few that was chosen to not have to work. And On the other hand, but you were one of the two that was chosen because you could live a life of poverty and, and make it meaningful. Mm. You could you could embrace this. It was always assumed, and that other people who were not elite, not spiritual elites, couldn't do it. So, like at some point in time. In the 1970s, there was a meeting of people. Wait, let me let me say this: there there was a meeting of people. I'm assuming that there was it either happened organically or there was like a like a mamash central meeting where they said, "If we become in power one day, if there's some sort of a reality whereby we get into the government and we can make change to our to to the structure of our community, we would like not to be an elite society anymore." No, we want this to be available uh, to everybody. Uh, no, yes, that's yes, but they didn't consider this. The, they didn't consider the the. They didn't the see the long term consequence. They didn't consider the consequence. They y- said we want this for everybody. They thought that everybody could be elite. You're also taking yes. a, you're taking a modern, a modern sociological analysis of something that happened then. Well, I'm talking you're retrospect. Adding, I, I, I have, I have the benefit of no, no. Right. There was a coalition discussion. That that was exactly okay. what happened. I mean, Begin went to Menachem Porish. And to the other people there, and said, you know, and, and it was clear that Begin was considered to be more traditional. He wasn't. In other words, when I said that, when I said the Shemtov and all these people, they were really secular. I mean, they didn't care at all about. And Begin was much more traditional in his in his personal life and in the way he he construed Zionism, Israel, etc. Et he mm. was much more traditional. Traditional people, including Haredim, were much more comfortable with him. Right, right. He he had a certain reverence for them. Yeah, reverence it resonated today, and 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 it was, and they were very happy to be part of the coalition. Not only because instrumentally, but philosophically, because they understood that the right wing, this is a right wing traditional coalition. It wasn't they a, respected what they were doing and yes. how they were. They, but it's really interesting. You say until 1977, the Haredi community structure or 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 their. It was an elitist structure, and it wasn't meant to be for everyone. Correct. So if you're a Haredi family in Israel, 
pre-77 and you have five kids, six kids, right. ten kids, and two of them are in yeshiva studies, and the rest of them go to the army and then get a job. Something like that, yeah. So what does the Haredi community look like? Then by, by its nature, it's not going to be as segregated from the rest of society. Correct. It's going to be a lot more pragmatic. It's going to be a lot more open because it mixes with the rest of society. Part of it mixes with the rest of society, right. What does the society look like? Do the people that go to the army and get a job stay Haredi? Yeah, they all dress Haredi, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They, they all wore black and white. and Yeah, and they send their kids to... Uh, to Haredi uh, institutions. To Haredi institutions, etc. So in 1977, the coalition agreements, what the leadership of the Haredi society or the different Haredi leaders make a decision, let's get everyone exempt from... Yeah, that's what we always wanted. Is we want everybody, you know, as many people... They did want that. Yeah. They didn't like the fact that they had to... Yeah, but they had to, you know, in, until 1977, that was considered to be, you know, a constraint, a given. That was a given that, you know... Mapai founded the state of Israel. They were going to be in power forever. And, and there was, you know, there was not... Not a whole lot to do about this. So it was very popular for them when they became into power to say, this is now available for everybody. We're not going to send our children to the military anymore. We are not going to work anymore. We are going to live in an insular community. Yeah, and the, everybody they, they can it, buy it, into that. Everybody, everybody now can. has the ability to fulfill the ultimate religious idea of dedicating his life to studying Torah. Was there any ever a thinking uh, to say we're... We're one day going to be a lot, a lot of people, and this is not self-sustaining. Nobody in Israel thinks farther than two years. It's <laughs> <laughs> so very true. <laughs> it's very true. You know, so like, uh, but here we are. You're, you're expecting, yeah. So you're expecting these people to be exceptions. I mean, you know, Ben Gurion didn't think more than two years. So you know, these people are going to think more than two years. <laughs> yet, yet here, yet here we are. Yeah, yeah. No, and, here we are absolutely. And I think that when you look, at, I mean, being serious for a second. <laughs> Which no, that that was serious. It's true. Most people here don't look two uh, years down the line. When I look at it today, and and I, you know, what do I know? But when I look at it today, I see, um, I see, a community that, while it may have helped itself, it definitely turned off a lot of people from ever wanting to approach religion. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know if that's necessarily good for Zionism, and I don't know if that's necessarily good for the Jews, and and it and it and it makes me and it makes me almost like I don't think it's good for Judaism. It makes me profoundly sad because if you want to have, you know, despite being very excited about a lot of the different you know renewed engagement that people have with with Orthodox Judaism in in, in and around the country that we've talked about, you know, basically ad nauseum on the program, uh, you know, with different renewals and things like that, it's it still is to this place where it's like. If you want to be engaging with religion in Israel, whether that's in an organized fashion, whether that's in your civic life because you have to get married with the rabbinate and, and kashrut and this and that, there is one way to do that, and it's their way or the highway. And if you aren't a part of that, then just opt out, completely opt out. But if you want to opt in, that's what it's going to look like no, for so you. Dan and there's not had, a lot of color. So, so Dan did this study on, I mean, so there's now more of an option. It's not a tremendous option, but there's now more of an option of, of doing, right? You have you have the the organized reform and conservative movements in Israel, which... Which are small. Which are small. And then you have Jewish renewal. In other words, you have whatever Jewish renewal, I think it's also very small. I think it's... They're, they're all small. I mean, what I pointed to, by the way, I read an article, um, Savika Klein... Yeah, who's now writing for Jerusalem Post, right. um, wrote an article recently about uh, a whole conference of, of, of non-Orthodox rabbis and Jewish life taking place in Israel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, um, he's talking about this resurgence, and, and he said, well, 
and, and he basically, uh, I don't think he read my book, but, but what he may I, have, he, he may have um, yeah. what I wrote. Um, and I think people didn't really get past the statistics that I published in that, which were a lot of original statistics, but the, the for me, what was most interesting is what's happening in Israeli Jewish society was the development of an Israeli post-Orthodox liberal Judaism that's outside of the denominations because we don't need denominations in Israel. Right. But it's taking place. It's happening. And um, for me, that was the most interesting thing of that study, that well, Israelis... You mean by that, Tithachut Yehudit? What do you mean? Yes, but, but lowercase. Nothing labeled, because we don't like labels here, but, uh, but this kind of just post-Orthodoxy, post-Halacha, liberal expressions of Jewish life where, where Israelis are saying, okay, we can start making things up as we Isn't want. Isn't that as small as the other thing? I don't know how small it is. I think it's got a lot of support. And, and most Chiloni Israelis um, sign on to it, even if they don't know how to label it. Okay, I mean, my, my impression of... I, I'm talking over 10%. I'm talking maybe even 20% of society, if I had to guess. 30%. Over 20% of society consciously endorses no, this? No, unconsciously. Unconsciously. All right. Consciously, I think about 10%. Let's put it this way. I always figured that, that, I don't know if this is a serious statement or not, but I always figured that like... Well, that's what podcasts are for. Like That, that what? That's what podcasts <laughs> are <think> for. So. <laughs> um, I always figured that 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 um, um, Judaism in Israel is like health food. If it doesn't cost too much, then uh, uh, and it's not a pain in the e- pain in the neck. Then you know, then if the kids want it, then we can do it. Something like that. Is that We're like both shaking our heads for people that don't want. Is it. that like the, the guest we had who talked about how anti-Semitism in Egypt is like broccoli? Like people dislike it, but they don't really think why. <laughs> people dislike it, but they don't really think about why. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't like broccoli. It's like, ah, oh, we don't like Jews, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that kind of like the the converse? Mashu <laughs> say. <laughs> weird but it, i mean it's interesting to think um and, and this is really the first time in in certainly modern history that we can say look at these two examples of of large jewish communities and thriving jewish life one where jews are a significant minority in america yes and the other ones where jews are the majority here in israel look at how the two societies and the two jewish communities have developed and we're talking about uh you know we spent the first part of this conversation talking about how liberal judaism developed um in the direction that it went. Mm-hmm. And now we're talking about how how orthodoxy and specifically Haredi society you know has developed here. You know, something that's interesting about But they're about also that. a minority and they're also very much aware of themselves as a minority. The Haredi? Yes. Are they? Yeah, you should, you should have heard uh, uh, um, Pedros. Uh, um, Pindros. Pindros. I was there. But yeah, so he said so. I mean, he was very careful to say so. He he kept on insisting on that, that they're an embattled minority. They view themselves as an embattled minority. Because when I have interactions with them, they very much act like they are a majority and they're on the ascent and everyone else is on the decline. Yes, but you, you, I, I don't know what you're interested but you know, they're, they're very much aware that they're under constant assault. This is a Haredi MK we had at the JPPI as a guest. Okay. C- constant assault by social media, by other media. And 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 that the how shall I say the temptations of the larger society are greater than ever. Do, do they really sense that in in their societies? I, that's why they build this society. They, they, yeah, of course they sense it. They, that, that's why they build. In other words, 
The difference in Haredi society, let's say, from 40 years ago, I learned in the Haredi yeshiva in the 1970s. Haredi light, but still Haredi mm. uh, in the 1970s. There was much, what, what I remember is that there was much more self-conscious ideological commitment. Much more self-conscious, self-conscious ideological commitment. People knew why they were Haredi. And today? Today, the state, because they've been in the government, they have the ability to build in sanctions that keep people in whether they want to or not. Right, which is why you have Amcha Haredi today. Right. Amcha well, means uh, lay right. people, but a, it, but a laity, run-of-the-mill people, right. so, but popular. It all, but, but it Haredi. also means that, that people, you know, they, ne- they don't necessarily believe in it. Uh, sure, because they they stay because they, right, they, they stay because they get out. They don't have to get out. There's family pressures. There's, there's right. society so pressures. So, so the quality of Haredi life, in terms of its ideological commitment, has probably shallower, shallower. Yeah, probably. I mean, I'm sure there's an elite that's that's. Where, whereas I feel that modern orthodoxy is still very much. Uh, um, people are much more um, conscious. And uh, and committed. We've died because modern authority it's not, there's no problem in getting out. Exactly, absolutely. Everybody on a dime can can walk out. They, I mean, they're college educated. They're in, they're integrated into all the all the professions and into high tech, etc. They have no problem surviving. But the retention rates are much lower. I'm sorry, the retention rates are much lower. In Orthodoxy Orthodox loses. I mean, modern, uh, religious Zionism loses twenty five percent a year. Twenty-five percent of machzor, they lose. They lose twenty-five percent. That's pretty much a given. Um, and the Haredim lose less. Right. Politics the, are very. Poli- the politics are very different as well. Yes. The politics of the modern Orthodox community in Israel, in in many cases and in many times, goes hand in hand with the politics of of, you know. There's geopolitics involved, the right right wing geopolitics. You yes, have, I mean you the Haredim Shemuel also and the settlement enterprise also support that, but they support it tacitly. Right, the Haredim are very right wing. Right, the Haredim are right wing, but the Haredi poli- didn't used to be the case, though. That's a that's to a certain extent a myth. Okay. I mean, yes, there were elites in the Haredi world that were not, but your average Haredi is xenophobic as they come. Mm. Hates Arabs, afraid of Arabs, you know, kill them all, etc., etc. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, no, no. I've, I've I've heard it. Um, although the very left wing on on. Economics and social welfare, because because well, they, they benefit from it. Because they benefit right. from it, right? Of course, right? Uh, no, but I mean, you just look at the case of uh, uh, you'll find modern Orthodox Jews in almost all political parties. Uh, yes, even if the majority are right wing, you will find certainly in it, they're scattered. Twenty percent right. are not right wing. Twenty percent to find themselves a centrist, and that's why you have them with Benny Gantz, and right. you have them in Yair Lapid. You Correct. have Elazar Stern and uh, uh, Tropper and Chili Tropper. And Chili Chopper, right here with Benny Gantz. Right. And, and you had uh, Tila, Tila Friedman, Tila Nachlan Friedman for five months or three months. You had months the former education minister, um, uh, Shai Piron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shai Piron, of course. Yeah, yeah. So you, had, so you have 20% who's, who, who identify as centrist. Ma- you have many in the Likud. By the way, by the, yeah, of course, you have many in the Likud, but Likud are right wing. No, I'm saying, but they're not. They're not in in sectoral. No, no. So the question is, modern what, what does that mean? No, rega, rega, rega. Question is, what does that mean? So I've been arguing in certain things that I've written, etc., that because the religious Zionist 
outlook has become the dominant outlook in, in Israel, you don't need a separate party. The Likud is taking ah, it over. That's a separate... I, I, I agree. I see it and I agree. It, because because the religious Zionist outlook has become the dominant outlook in Israel, you no, longer, you no longer need a sectoral party for religious Zionists. Right. And they say so. I mean, you know, Filber and all those people say... Filber comes from the very heart Philbert was now the star of this, you know... The trials. Trial. The, the Netanyahu trials. Right, right, he comes from the very heart of religious Zionism. Mm. His father was Rabbi Philbert, who was the head of the, of the um, Yeshiva High School affiliated with uh, Merkaz Harav. He's, he was... All the elites studied with him. So, I mean, and yet you still have Smotrich... You still right, have. but I'm saying, look what happened. You had you had you had all these guys. You had Bennett, you had Smutrich. How many did they get? Six, seven, etc. Right. So where does the religious Zionist vote go? It goes to Likud. It goes to Likud. Yeah, right. it goes to Likud. Why does it go to Likud? So you don't need it. Interesting. So why don't they disband entirely? I'm sorry. Why don't they disband entirely and just make the Likud bigger? That's always in discussion. If you read the religious press because before some people, every, some people want to keep their jobs. <laughs> no, no, but, but <laughs> you read Chagai Segel. If you read Makori Shon before every every one of the last five elections, right, that we had in the last political crisis, in the last three weeks, there was this discussion: <laughs> Why are we having another party? What do we need it for? Right. It just siphons off votes. Let everybody vote for Likud, vote for Bibi, and 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 you know, and uh, um, we'll have a firm right wing government, which is what we need. Is um, is that the direction of Israel? Let, let's let's jump twenty years in the future, fifty years in the future. I know we love to do this, right? Uh, with all the certainty of it, but I mean, is that is the direction of Israel? Is that it's going to be the Haredi or right wing religious? Ben Gvir is prime minister, you know. Could <laughs> be. No, um, we don't know. Well, of course we don't know. Well, you're assuming that our AI overlords let us have a government and assuming, even exist. Assuming, and, and assuming we're not a, just an entirely binational Palestinian state by then, yes. Or that uh, we're not completely <laughs> annihilated by nuclear war, which is seemingly a possibility more and more as time goes by with what's going on. With Iran? With U- U- Ukraine. Ah, oh, with Ukraine or Iran. Pick your, you forgot pick your about event. that? <laughs> It like sits in the back of my mind, like this anxiety of like, that happened. Take current trends, societal trends, demographic trends. Where's Israel in 20 years? Oh, I, I, okay, so, so. And, and where's the American Jewish community in 20 years? Let's, let's have a fun game. Oh, American Jewish communities may be easier. Much easier. The American Jewish community will be 30 to 40% Haredi, Orthodox. I mean, that was the conference yesterday, but, um, do you see that happening? Because people have been saying it for a long time, and yet every time we have a new data and we have new polling, we still find six, seven million Jews in America oh. and, and 10% Orthodox, and it doesn't seem to be growing past Well, that. the children are, you have 18% of the children are in Orthodox households. Right. So either, you know, so they grow up. So, so in other words, either, either they will cease being Orthodox I mean, you can have any number of scenarios, but but it does seem. I mean, the Orthodox the Orthodox used to be two percent; they're now ten percent. True. So you know, um, going so back to the beginning of the conversation, if the entire non-Orthodox Jewish outlook is all about progressive democratic politics and not about Judaism, and not about Judaism, no, I think th- I think there are two calling cards. Calling card number one is digress- progressive democratic politics. Pr- um, calling card number two is spirituality. Th- that's a new one. 
yoga, spirituality, um, or what I Jewish Buddhism, um, or what I introduce in the new book is a return dead. to uh, what I introduce in this new book that's coming out now that you, you reviewed right. and, and gave me a hard time with yes. is um, is is a return to Jewish spirituality among progressive circles in America. Oh uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, De- yeah, detached yeah. from Israel, by the way. This is this is the newest thing. But how is that sustainable over time? I didn't say it's sustainable over time. I just said this is what's happening. I know it's happening now, but we're talking about what's going to be in twenty years. No, oh, no, okay. but, but this is this is a constant since the seventies. This this spirituality since Woodstock, this, this is a constant. No, I understand it's a constant, but it's it's a constant in that those are very small examples. And when I say small, I mean in numbers of people that are engaging with them. It's not the normative no. American Jewish population it, that's I think all it, I, doing this. I think this it changes new. the normative. I think it changes. I think the normative have absorbed. I think he's right. The normative have absorbed elements of this. Yeah, they've co-opted elements of this. Sure. Okay, the, the, but this is this is you know, uh, and I re- remember always conversations with uh, our, our former colleague uh, Uzi, uh, the Rebun? Uzi Rebun, the demographer, who said, uh, "Be careful to look at demographic demographic trends too far in the future because you don't know how things will affect." And, and you know, people talk about the demise of American Judaism, and, and you know, then Len Sachs comes out, and oh, we still have seven million Jews in America, depending how you count, or five million Jews, depending how you count. It doesn't disappear overnight. But what happens here in Israel is you have to look at... Listen, I mean, against all odds, <clears throat> the current government came into existence, and it lasted 11 months. And it's still going. I'm sorry? And it's still going. And it's actually who's still going. So that was something, I think, totally unexpected. Right. And, um, and it has a religious Zionist component in it. Even though the other the their uh, opponents in the religious Zionist camp, Smutrich et al., sure. make a huge amount of noise, right? And, and they claim that they betrayed us. They're not really uh, blah, us, blah, et cetera, blah, et right? But, but, but still, the point uh, is, right. is that there's is that there's a is that there's um, uh, more than a modicum, uh, judging from newspapers, etc., right wing religious Zionist newspapers. There's there's a modicum and more than a modicum of support for the, for this government. Still, what? Still, still, yeah, right. Yeah. And, and the, you have to understand that the religious Zionists are, are are a population that's capable of being critical of Bibi, which of is Netanyahu, right? Which uh, let's say you know which maybe some of the Likud people are less so. Correct. So so they're they're in principle capable of being and. Um, you know, I mean, listen, they tried, Elazar Stern tried to tout the horn. I don't know if it may have had any effect, but he tried to tout the horn that the flag parade, flag dance, the flag march, how it's right. called, how's it called in English? Oh, the, in English? The flag uh, parade. Flag parade or march? It doesn't matter. What'd you say? I said parade. Parade. No, what's the first word? Flag. Oh, the flag. It's flag with his uh, Minnesota accent. Oh. Not really Minnesota. Are you from accent. Minneapolis? I am. He's going back to me. So he's got to say flag. It's colder. Flag march. No, but you got to say flag. You're going not, back. No, if it, if it was a Minnesota accent, that would just be a plain word. It'd be flag. Oh, just be flag. So flag. Where, where do you? Uh, there bag, wouldn't. But bag becomes bag. Bag. That's more like a Canadian thing. I don't know, man. You got to pick it up. You're going back. You got. I don't know. You got to start talking like okay, you're Minnesota anyway, again. So, um, so he tried to, to make the point that last year. The flag parade did not take place in its traditional route because 
COVID. Netanyahu, no. Because, no, because they buckled to Hamas pressure. Because of Hamas pressure. Mm. And this year they and didn't. And this year they did not. So he said, listen, you know, you can say all you want about who's... I, I actually heard that from multiple sources that are usually critical of the government. They said, you know what, we got to give it to Bennett. He, he, you know, stuck to it and didn't capitulate to... Right. Uh, and, and I mean, that's Hamas been the theme of this government all the time, is that Netanyahu talks a, talks a good game. Talks a big game, but he's not really right wing. Right. Well, and I've been and the people who do things is us. I mean, I mean, for better I mean, or for worse, I'm not, you know, I'm not claiming everything they do is, uh, but, but the people who actually implement the program, right? With the 400, how many, how many new units for you, Don Shamron? 400,000? Do you ever stop for a second? I mean, so we're so in this when we live here that it becomes like the, the, the topic of conversation. We're like living it. So it's like we're talking about the merits or the politics behind a parade. Do you ever like zoom out macro and go like, like, come on, it's a parade. Like you this know is what, what we're dealing with. Uh, we're dealing with the politics of a parade. And it's a yet, parade. and yet, and yet, lo- like look at what happened this year. Look what happened last year. It sparked. I know. Last it's meaningful. year, it sparked a a a eleven day war with Hamas with fifty thousand rockets. This year, it sparked violent uh, rioting and fighting between uh, in Sheikh Jarrah afterwards. No, I, 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 it was awful what I saw on the news. Um, after after the flag day marches more awful than other things yes yes and um with, with and even during the flag and i got into it with um um <laughs> someone just responded that minneapolis is where proper english is spoken <laughs> thank you steven um um got into it with uh, seth Franceman, a journalist and former also a guest of ours um, that a lot of the elements these were not, you know, thugs, brutish thugs who were instigating violence against the Arabs in the in the flag day march, but these were of the elites of religious Zionist community who were uh, harassing Arabs during the march, who were, you know, breaking uh, storefronts and and doing all sorts of things from within the march, which which seemed to have gone mostly peaceful, but there were these elements who were causing trouble. And then afterwards, I watched on the news as as people, um, Jewish people descended on Arab neighborhoods in Jerusalem and just started picking fights. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and fights broke Yeah, out. but wasn't that to a certain extent La Familia and people yes. like that? Yes. That's a different population. That's, that's what I said. Um, how did we get into that? Why did we get into that? Because I was talking about it being like, oh. in the macro sense, like, come on, it's a parade. It, like, it's, it's a like parade. The, that, that the national government of any country that has populations more than a couple hundred thousand has to deal with the when, geopolitical when, ramifications of what in another place, like in Europe or in the States, might be just like an everyday occurrence. Like it's it, when when that parade wants, here, to go, this is, wants to go through Arab. No, you're right. I, old city of Jerusalem. It, it's it's yeah, a yeah. part of what makes us a uniquely special and strange oh, place. Yes. Oh yes, and 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 you know. Do you do it to assert your identity? Do you do it to assert your dominance? Do you not do it and then you seem like you're capitulating? I mean, there's a lot of uh, considerations here. Yeah, yeah, but say What's your take on this? I mean, I, I personally don't like, I don't like parades in general. I, I really can't stand parades, so I don't go to these things. But uh, per- per- Specify more. The flag, the flag march, the flag Yeah, parade. I know. What's your take on it? What are your thoughts <sighs> Let's put it this way. I mean, I think that especially in religious Zionist youth, and this is mainly attempted attended to by 
people who participated in the parade were mainly religious Zionist youth, 50,000 of them. Correct. And, and by the way, it was uh, pe- people have pointed out, why was there no, barely any secular people there? Well, because, uh, A, because the religious Zionists have sort of appropriated this day for themselves. It was appropriate this for themselves as opposed to secular In Jews other words, yeah, no, I was thinking from? about this. I was thinking about that, that, that for most Israelis... Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Day, has basically become a day where, where we think about it, are, are there going to be security threats or not? And in that sense, I think that the religious Zionists have, have um, how shall I say, sc- scored a goal against themselves. I think they've hurt themselves. How? Like I say, um, what could perhaps be a day with positive content and with multiple loci. I'll give you an example of, of you, know, you know what the Chiloni counterpart of Yom Yerushalayim is? There is such a thing. It's very undeveloped because nobody really cultivates it, least of all the religious Zionists. But there are two Moktim, there are two foci of, of, of Jerusalem Day from a ritual point of view or from a ceremonial point of view. The first is right the uh, the old city, the Kotel and and Temple Mount. And the second is Givata Tachmoshet. Ammunition Hill, the, the site right. of a famous battle in the nineteen sixty seven war. And there and there and there, there is a ceremony, there's a Mamlachti ceremony on on on, on 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 Givata Tachmoshet that nobody knows about. I didn't know about it. You heard it here. <laughs> <laughs> there's a ceremony. Givata Tachmoshet. And and that doesn't get any, you know, no press, no press. It doesn't get any. Uh, so so, what do people think about people? All, you know, for the last two weeks, everything that was published about Jerusalem Day, will there be rockets from Hamas? Right. How will the will will the will the young the will the Arab youth uh, barricade itself in El Aqsa and throw and throw firebombs? Which uh, they did. Uh, which to a certain extent they did. Um, will Iran, you know, will Abdullah and Iran intervene? It says, so what does this day amount to? It amounts to a day that everybody is apprehensive about security, about security things. And, and yet, on the other hand, I, I will say, as much as I don't like these things, you can't back down because it, it lowers the bar and then sets a new standard, lower I, I'm or saying, higher. But I, of, I'm saying, of how you I'm saying, if people forty years ago, forty-five years ago, when Yom Yerushalayim was invented, mm. people would have said. This day is going. This to is what it's going to become. Yeah, it's going to. Be, I think people would have been horrified. That's not what they of had in mind that, at all. That's not right. That's not what the uh, the author intended. Yeah, that that is this day that everybody just discussing whether there's going to be rockets from Gaza, and and, and 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 security threats. So from that point of view, you know, I think that if, from an educational point of view, you know, I'm, I'm a religious Zionist and I had worked in education, and I would say, you know, if this day is supposed to educate. Israelis about the meaning of Zionism, the meaning of of uh, uh, um, um, of what it means to have your own state with its own capital, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's total, total fistfuls, total. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, miss the to- point. Miss the point. They miss the mark. They miss. Uh, they miss everything. You know. So that, if you want to know, that's. Hmm. Um, you know, I can, and I can even say this from the point of view of endorsing the entire point of view of the people on the march. Say, is this really what you want? I mean, is, you know. Sure. So, you know, right. so some of the people I know, I mean, I had a conversation the day after with somebody who, um, he's very, he's, he come. I, I, I had a conversation in the gym. 
Um, he, he's a guy who comes very regularly to work out. He's very right wing. He's a very good debater. I don't know what he does, you know, but I wouldn't be surprised if somebody said, you know, he teaches math or science in Hebrew University. Extremely good debater. He's very right wing. But I got, you know, and his whole point was was that this is a bad assertion of our sovereignty. Right. You know, so it was almost like West Side Story. You know, you have these two gangs. You have, you know. So, so that's what I say. On the one hand, I get it. And I understand the need to assert sovereignty, especially in an area where the culture, that that's what, how the culture works here. You have to assert sovereignty. On the other hand, I hate it. Yeah. I so, hate that that's what it is. I wish it could be positive. I wish it could be. You know, right, uh, and I, you know, educational elements, and, and and you know, I I I've I've been on Temple Mount. I don't know if you have anybody here has. I yeah. have a long time ago. Yeah, oh, you have been. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so um, so I on the other hand, I sympathize with the chief rabbinate in terms of the prohibition to go on to Temple Mount because I think that you know Zionism is this movement that's. Radically secularist. That it's it's sacred. It secularizes its objects. That's what it does. In other words, it I, to a certain extent, um, I, I accept that, right? You know, the land of Israel was a was a religious sacred conception, and to a certain extent, it becomes secularized through Zionism. If you understand me, so Temple Mount, which is the last redoubt of nomini- of you know the numinous, what what what, you know, Ralfaro called the numinous, the numin- the at the aspect of the holy that's transcendent and beyond and not human and et cetera, et cetera. So that's sort of been reduced to a turf battle. Yeah, you know between between you know two groups of people. I don't want to say two gangs, but it, it does remind me of you know yeah. of West Side Story to a certain extent. And I think that that's a sort of violation of. I mean, it's. Uh, of of the sanctity of yeah, what the place is yeah 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 and and in, and in a strange way I mean this is maybe going back all the way to the beginning of the show but it's like in the last ten minutes if we could delve into this this is where I kind of see the reality of we are a we're, we're Middle Eastern people living in the Middle East with other Middle Eastern people and there's a turf war that takes place and these are how our sort of values or our ambitions are exerted right and and theirs as well in the in the way that they deal with it. And then we have this sort of secular state apparatus, whether it's the government, the the the, the call it the police and the military, or the the enforcement of policy, and the and the, the judiciary, which are sort of, you know, they they so much want to assert that they are Western mm-hmm. democratic, and and the fact is is that they're not of this place, if that's what they are saying. This is not a Western. We're not in America here. We're not in Europe here. America isn't in America anymore either. Or every also true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> J- judging for what's going on there, sure. I mean, you know, that's not but, the America that I sure no grew up in. I but, mean, but my point is that it's it's in America, a parade is a parade, whereas here it takes on a. Well, no, very I'm not sure in America, a parade is a parade anymore. I don't know if it makes national news. Um... Like what, what? There's no, there's no territorial sovereignty issue in America. It's not a territorial sovereignty. Yeah, but you don't have George uh, Floyd, George Floyd, and all that. Right. Stuff. No, but I'm saying like in 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 exactly. in, in the dynamic of territory, the Amer- the, no, the concept of an American of saying we have to assert a territorial sovereignty over what? There's no, no dispute but, but, territory. No, but in America, no, no, no. you do have uh, ideological territory, so to speak. 
you know, uh, yes. what we were talking about earlier. Is this group allowed to march? Are we even allowing this group to assert its identity? Not its right. No, but I'm not talking about sovereignty. that. You're right. So, so here it's, it's territorial sovereignty and what do flags represent? And, you know, when, when all this came up and I was thinking to myself, and a couple of weeks ago there was a Nakba Day, which uh, Palestinians, uh, re, you know, remember the, what happened to them on Israeli mm-hmm. Independence Day. And, and and some Israeli Arabs marched or held up Palestinian flags in right. Israeli universities, and there was a big uproar. And I said to myself, you know, if someone marched in the streets of Israel with um, a British flag, would anyone, would anyone care? A German flag. A German flag. The Holocaust was just, you know, 80 years Nobody ago. Nobody would identify what, a German, what the contemporary German flag is today. Nobody would care. If you And if and people march in America all the time. They do St. Patrick's Day Parade with Irish yeah, flags. Yeah, right. And they do Puerto Rican Day in New York. And nobody cares. Okay. How how and it, and can we? Can we and how can we get to a point? Um, this kind of connects to the discussion we had uh, at the Institute yesterday with uh, the Arab-Israeli guest. Is there ever a place where we can get to a point in Israel where the flags are no longer triggering for the other, so to speak, where, where someone can hold up a Palestinian flag and nobody will care, or conversely, you hold up an Israeli flag and the Palestinians don't care. If there's ever an agreement about how to resolve this issue, yes, but that would that's nowhere in sight. Yeah, that's nowhere in sight, and in my mind, in order for that to happen, you would have to have a totally different flag. You have to have what? A different flag. I don't think that the Israeli flag oh, or know. the Palestinian yeah, flag would, would be neutral. I don't know, but neutral. you'd have to have a political resolution to the Arab-Israeli conflict, yeah. which I don't see is Ever. anywhere in the cards. No, I'm not saying it is, but I'm just saying, is, is there any way to get to a point where people here in Israel aren't triggered by the Palestinian flag? No. I don't think no. so. No. Today, the way today. things today. are structured today, no. Tomorrow. No, I'm saying is the only way you can get there is if you radically change the reality. Okay, because this is Becholzot. Yes, we, we want to give them rights and we, they have to be in a democratic polity and all that stuff. But the fact is, is that we are at war with them. Correct. Correct. Um, given everything that's happening now, and we'll kind of use this question to, um, to wrap up the conversation. Mm-hmm. Everything that's happening now in America. So, and, and let's maybe focus on the Jewish community. Everything now that's happening here in Israel. Wh- what are some thoughts, you know, big thoughts that you might have to kind of leave us thinking, or questions that you're asking, or, or kind of if we want to leave leave the listeners and ourselves with with food for thought. What What are things that are going through your mind lately? Um, I'll tell you one thing. I don't know if this is what you're. I don't know. Interested in, but I can we'll leave it open. Yeah, about a thought that I had. The I think that this thing about Harabayit is um, Temple Mount. You can't, yeah, you can't put the toothpaste back into the tube. What do you mean? And you had fifty thousand marchers uh, on Sunday, who were basically focused on Harabayit. Now they couldn't get up for logistical reasons. They only only twenty six hundred the police allowed up. Which is a record number in itself. Yeah, it's a record sure. number in uh, itself. Only twenty six hundred were allowed in the early hours of the morning, et cetera, et cetera. I think that at least in the religious Zionist and probably what's called the traditional, the Masorati population, um, the focus on Temple Mount is a fait accompli. You think that's the new focus of of the Israeli religious right? In its broad sense, not only the hardcore religious. When you say fait accompli, you're talking about the 
rebuilding of the temple, or are you no, talking no, no. about like talking to about change the re- status quo of the temple? Yeah. Changing, at, this, at this stage, changing the status quo, allowing allowing organized prayers, Jewish organized prayers there, um, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's why I approached certain people in our institute about building a task force on Temple Mount. Now, not in final agreement. Now. Mm, All the stuff on Temple Mount has been have been in the Oslo process have was related to final agreement. That's out the window. There's no Oslo process. There's no there's no um, um, there's no chance of a final agreement the way things look now. I'm not saying there ne- never will be, but the way things look now. This this is interesting because it goes back to what we talked about last week or last last episode with with Ruan where we said if the Arab world is blaming us for changing the status quo on the Temple Mount. And we know that we're not, and the government's not doing anything provocative right now, and it's all sort of the the propaganda on the other side saying, look what the Jews are doing in the Temple Mount. If they're if we're going to pay the price anyways, might, might as well you do might it. as well do it. So you're going to sit in jail. I think, I think, I think, I think, that, I think it's in gender, I think I never thought of it from that point, but I think that the the, the stuff on the Arab side is engendering a dynamic when that's, how, well, that's what's going to happen. Say, say that again. I think that the propaganda on the Arab, I think it's self-fulfilling propaganda. The, the, the propaganda on the Arab side that we're trying to change the status quo on the Temple Mount is causing Jews to say, let's change the status quo on the Temple Mount. Something like that, yes. In other words, because if the, if the, if the Jews feel that the Arabs are being overly aggressive. Which they are. Which they are. So the response is. Let's, then let's be overly aggressive. Right. Right, and 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 what I what I tell I my Arab friends, what has been not thought ten years ago was now everybody thinks it. Look, and, and I'll point out for my Arab friends, as far as I know, the the Jewish movement to want to be able to go up to the Temple Mount and pray doesn't want to kick out the Arabs. Correct, from, but I'm saying or, or you, prevent you, them from you, worshiping. But I'm saying even the whole terminology of using the Jewish movement that wants to go up and pray on Temple Mount, mm. it's not the Jewish movement; it's everybody. Yeah, there is no more. Jewish movement because it now, in other words, 20 years ago, you had the mass of people didn't care about Temple Mount. You had 200 people, Gershom Solomon and all these other people, you had 200 people who were fanatics for that. You know, they were like a lobby for Temple Mount. So they were the group that was interested in Temple Mount. There's no more group that's interested in Temple Mount because it's the general population. Now it's the Likud. Now it's, yeah. Now, yeah. And now it's, and now it's pop, the popular opinion. That's a very interesting uh, thought to end with. And uh, and you also have Arabs, and, and I know that you know some, who will publicly say that the Temple Mount is not the site that Islam says or that the, that the Palestinian narrative says it is. Uh, I, I've, or, I've heard many, Saudi. Many of them will say that's where the Beit Hamikdash. That's where Beit Hamikdash. Right. Well, the, which is historical, but they will say I've heard. I've heard people. I, I've heard that. It's not say it's that not popular. It's not popular. I know. It's Guys, not popular, don't forget so. that the Al Qaeda group in Sinai is called Jesh Beit Hamikdash. Is it Jesh Hamikdash? Yeah. Yeah. The army of uh, the Temple Mount. Yeah. Yeah. Al Makdis of Hamikdash. Right. Right. Isn't that what the Iranian guard is called as well? Don't they have like a Jerusalem brigade or something? Yes, yeah. a Jerusalem brigade. Yeah, um, good times. Wonderful, Shlomo Fisher. If uh, I look forward uh, to the coming years. If, if people, <laughs> if people want to follow you or or read your writings, I mean, they can do it, of course, on the JPPI website. You publish occasionally in right. newspapers. Yeah, yeah. Are you on social media? Can people follow you? No, on social uh, a media? little bit. A little bit on social media. Which yeah. one? I'm, I'm mainly on Times of Israel blogs. And, Times of Israel blogs. And, and new, newsletter of JPPI, JPPI website. And if in Hebrew, so I appear also in all the Hebrew stuff, uh, cl- including Ynet, uh, 
And so we'll take this uh, as an opportunity to say, if you are interested in, in this kind of conversation and in, in the kind of work and thinking that Shlomo or I are doing, um, go to the JPPI website and you mm-hmm. can sign up for the newsletter in Hebrew or in English. Right. And you can get um, right. his work and the work of the other fellows uh, right. that's happening there. Uh, Shlomo, thank you so much for joining us thank today. You. Thank, thank you very you much. Thank you very much. Right. Thank and you very uh, much. we'll see everybody next time from the new studio on Juanced. Great. Bye-bye. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.